All right, welcome everyone to another episode of Behind the Human. I'm your host, Mark Champagne, and it's my job to unpack the stories and mental fitness practices of people living at the top of their game, personally and professionally. And today is just a true honor. We've got a return guest, third time we have, or this will be the third time Jerry's on the show, and is someone who... I mean, also graces the page of my debut book, which I'm, I'm forever grateful for and has a chapter in there and someone who crosses my mind often. But if you haven't heard the previous episodes or the bios or anything like that, I'll give you a little bit of context first before we begin. Jerry is an executive coach who uses the skills he learned as a venture capitalist to help entrepreneurs. He's a co-founder and CEO of Reboot, the executive coaching and leadership development company, host of the Reboot podcast and author of Reunion, Leadership and the Longing to Belong, which is coming out November 14th. Uh, this show or this episode should be out by that time or it's coming in a couple of days. So make sure to take a look at that book. And don't forget our previous conversation would have highlighted some of the beautiful topics in Reboot, Leadership and the Art of Growing Up, which was published in 2019. Um, but I have to say, you know, Jerry, Jerry is someone who is often on my mind. And uh, I mentioned this to you, Jerry, before we hit record, but you know, you're, you're kind of like a mentor from afar, where I find myself asking, often, what would Jerry do? Or what questions would Jerry ask in this situation? So for everyone listening, if you hang around long enough, I think you'll quickly see why I say this. So it's with uh, a great pleasure to welcome you back, Jerry. Oh, thank you for having me back, Mark. And I, I really don't know what to say with that kind of an introduction. I guess I would say thank you. It's an honor. Um, I'm sorry I live in your head. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I'll send you your questions bill. are big. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, you do remind me of something a client once said. You're old enough to remember when people wear the WWJD bracelet. Yep. What would Jesus do? So he asserted that he was going to wear WWJD. What would Jerry do? Or what would Jerry say? So, yeah, um, yeah. I find that highly amusing. So it's, well, you know, it's, it's so, you know, and I mean it, of course, and it comes from a really, uh, you know, authentic place. And, and this happens over and over again. And we're, we're joking a little bit about it, but it is something that I feel like that's a mental fitness practice in itself. I mean, you know, I've got, I've, I've got you kind of stirring up in my head and there are others as well, but I, I, I feel like it's something that, that many, um, have never tried where you can, you know, if you're faced in a circumstance where, whether this is a, an, uh, a challenging circumstance or even something that, you know, you're trying to, I don't know, plan out the future, design, you know, your life, your business and so forth in a kind of in a, in a, a surrounded by positive emotion, we all have the ability to pick someone, you know, that, w that inspires us or that, you know, maybe we've learned from, or we really respect to just zoom out for, you know, just sometimes minutes and, and almost answer the questions from, again, from their perspective. And I find it fascinating what's possible when, when you do that. And it's, it's essentially mental trickery, but I want, I guess, I guess what I'm, I'm, where I'm getting going with this is, are there people like that in your life? Like, I, I'm so you, glad you just okay. asked that because I was just going to say, uh, I don't think any, anyone has ever asked me who's in my head in quite that way. And there are two people who are in my head. Uh, and I'm grateful that they're still with us. Uh, one is Sharon Salzberg, my mm. Buddhist teacher. Yeah. Um, and almost always what she would say is breathe yes. and begin again. Yeah. Um, but the other one who is really um, deep with inside of me is Parker Palmer. And Parker, as you know, wrote the forward to the, my new book, Reunion. But actually, very often in these times in particular, where the world feels like it's uh, yet another dumpster fire, mm -hmm. I find myself imagining, using active imagination and empathy and intuition and 20, 25 years of friendship 
to be able to say, what would Parker say in this moment? Mm. And, um, you know, I know that you've read the galley uh, to reunion. You know that one of the things that I speak about in that book is the absence of elders in our yeah. life. And, you know, I don't know for sure, but I think I'm your elder. Um, <laughs> I, I do have gray hair, though. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got hair. Well, then you've got one on top of me. Um, but I think that part of what you're really talking about is who are the elders who have been internalized inside of you, mm -hmm. who help you navigate the difficulties of the day? And I think that the advantage of shifting that to elders is that they do not have to be alive. Yeah. They can, yeah. They can be with us. Um, and, and they don't even have to be one-to-one -one relationship. Um, they can be um, an elder who wrote a passage in an important work that has stayed with you. Um, mm -hmm. And I think you're right. It is a, a powerful mental well-being tactic to access the elders who have come before us and may know a thing or two that we have not yet learned. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Parker. I, I literally had you, Parker, and I can't remember the co-host to that show yesterday in my ear preparing for oh, this. Oh, Carrie Newcomer. Ka yes, Carrie. Yes. So uh, very familiar with, well, at least from that episode, the, the backstory between uh, all of you. I, you did allude to something that, and this is how I wanted to start the show. I've already, this is very few, this has been, this is interview, I think 300, we're almost at 350. And I've only done this a couple times where I don't start the show with the who are you question. Mm. Uh, now I encourage everyone to go back to our other episodes because I, I did ask you that question. But for some reason, I, I, you know, something that you always provide for me, again, from afar is the ability to just really take a breath, slow down and and pause. And it felt, given everything that's going on in the world right now, that the question that actually opens your, your chapter in my book is very fitting to, I think, get your perspective and your insight in, in terms of how, how you're meeting the world as it is right now. That, and that's the question that, I mean, and obviously it's, it opens your chapter in Personal Socrates, but it, I find myself going back to that question over and over again, um, probably a little bit more often than I'd, I'd, I'd like, given everything that's going on. So I'm curious, Jerry, to see how you're doing that right now, because we're in a really charged, um, I mean, that's an understatement. We're, we're in a really challenging place, just globally and with humanity, I find. So I'll put a little bit more context of what I see, uh, where I see us as a species right now, where I see us as societies. Um, so I wrote a book about a leader's responsibility to a world riven by strife and division and what I reference using the language from the brilliant John E. Powell, uh, a world riven by systemic othering. What is our responsibility in a world where we, um, as I've taken to saying in the last few weeks, where the demons of dehumanization mm -hmm. are walking the planet? Yeah. And they're showing themselves in everything from war and actions between state actors and perhaps non-state actors. Um, but they're also showing it in a six-year-old Palestinian-American boy being stabbed to death in response yep. to what's happening around the world. And I'm just going to say that again slowly. A six-year-old boy. Mm -hmm. And... Unfortunately, there are thousands and thousands of people who in no way could be identified as complicit with or acting upon 
or furthering the systemic othering of others who are dying, who are being murdered, who are being killed. So that's one way to see the way the world is right now. Yeah. And how am I? Well, it's a very strange experience, I will tell you, to have written a book and started that book in the midst of anti-Black racism protests mm-hmm. in 2020 and carrying it forward and seeing the threats of dehumanization and systemic othering showing itself. And I'm not happy that the book is prescient. Yeah, fair. Good point. So, um, and the last thing I'll say is something that I, that I've been in conversation with my teacher, Sharon about, you know, in Buddhism, one of the most important concepts is the bodhisattva. And the bodhisattva is someone who forestalls taking enlightenment, forestalls moving into nirvana. So until and unless all beings are free of suffering. What a brilliant and beautiful notion. And key to being a bodhisattva is what's known as bodhicitta, awakened heart or open heart. Okay. And one of the things I said to Sharon is in times like this, where there's so much suffering, bodhicitta hurts. It hurts terribly to feel it all. But I think the answer to how we ought to be in these times is to feel it, even though it hurts. And to open up to the individual stories of suffering so that the individual is not lost in the global context of global conflict. Mm -hmm. Because there are hundreds of thousands of individual stories of people whose lives are cut short or bear the burden of the weaponization of fear and suffering. So let me just pause because I know I said a lot and I linked a lot of concepts, but that's how I am right now. Well, thank you. I mean, thank you for for sharing that and 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 opening up, of course. I had written down at one point that I guess an, an insight, because I'm I'm trying to I'm trying to simplify for myself and, and others, what are, what are very complicated situations around the world, whether it's war, whether, you know, a lot of what's happening right now in terms of the emotions, I'm just talking about the emotions, circumstances are of course different, but it brings back a lot of the division I felt during the pandemic, <laughs> where for at least for me in my lifetime, that was the first time I've ever been, you know, I feel like kind of backed up in a corner thinking, whoa, I mean, I, I thought that relationship I had with that person was very different. I've, been, I've never experienced such a strong divide in something. And I'm feeling it again. And I say this with um, realization uh, or, or at least admitting that, you know, when it comes to um, the, the conflicts that, that are being most discussed, because there's many of them around the world, I don't have friends or family and relatives in, in any of those, those hot spots. So, you know, I say that from, from, that, from this place. But I do feel with, you know, even in, in my own men's group where we meet every couple of weeks, you know, there's a topic that we brought up and I could feel the differences. And, and that's a container where we come in with the intention of there's no judgment in this space. We're just here to hold space for each other and, and speak openly. And it's only happened in seven years where there's been two times where I can feel like, I think there's some judgment here and it's been, it was the pandemic and it's been what's going on right now. So I guess the question that comes to mind is in order to have conversations that are, are, challenging and painful or even being able to to hold space to to, to dialogue in, in a situation like that how do we first calm our nervous system to be able to show up in, in a way that 
you know, isn't, isn't triggered. Cause I feel like that's the hardest. It, you, you can't turn anywhere without seeing triggering really anything. And it's, it's like, yeah, I feel like it's hard to have a conversation from a place like that. So what comes to mind is uh, teaching from another Buddhist teacher of mine named Pema Chodron. And um, I forget which book it is specifically. It may be her most recent book, which is How We Live is How We Die. But she says um, that you start with a broken heart. Mm. You know, we are socialized for so long um, to not actually acknowledge our own pain and suffering. And um, the, the best I can glean from the elders whose wisdom I access is that the teaching is you first start in the hardest spot, which is your own pain and suffering. I'll give you what, uh, yeah. an, an example of what I'm talking about. I have a client um, who identifies as uh, Jewish. Um, despite my best intentions, he's a Red Sox fan. <laughs> I cannot shake him of this, 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 I cannot disabuse him of this silly notion. Anyway. There's no amount of Buddhism. To, no to amount of Buddhism. Out, right? <laughs> All right. Right. Uh, um, and um, over the summer, he read uh, the galley version of reading. And we were talking yesterday and um, he said, Jerry, I have to be honest with you. When I first started reading the book, he was a big fan of my first book, Reboot. Uh, when I first started reading the book, I didn't get what you were talking about, about connecting back to our ancestors' experience of being other. Um, they're in the past. Why do I have to go there? He said, but now, right now, I get what you're trying to say, which is that, that we have to begin the process of reunion, the process of connecting and bridging that which separates us one from the other by first and foremost listening to our own stories and those stories that live in our body as the stories of our ancestors. And we need to acknowledge their experience, positive and negative the fullness of their experience in order to lay the ground for us to hear the stories of others. Because part, and, and we know this is true, part of the division that you may have experienced, Mark, during the pandemic, part of the experience that we may be feeling right now is that we're talking past each other. Yeah. We're asserting the inhumanity of the other person using language that's very dangerous mm -hmm. savages beasts terrorists when what we need to get back to is what need is that person trying to meet by an action that is brutal or abhorrent because as my teacher, Parker Palmer, likes to say, violence is what we do when we don't know what to do with suffering. Yeah. And so we are living in a world where violence is actually growing, where, where systemic othering-based violence, where we dehumanize a group of individuals and we say they, all of them, all of them are fill-in-the-blank. That is a reaction to suffering. And my elders have taught me that the only appropriate humanizing reaction to suffering is compassion. Now, don't let somebody punch you in the face. Take care of your body and that of those whom you love. But the only way through is suffering. The only way through is being with suffering. I don't know any other way through. Well, that brings, I, I feel like that brings me back to the, the opening question. Because I, I, what I really, 
I just, I can't, it, I find it so hard to wrap my head around the fact that in this day and age, like we've just never lived in the, in the history of, of humanity. There's always been war in some capacity and violence and, and, and people losing their lives. So there's a part of me that thinks, well, we're never going to change this. It's like, how, but at the same time, it's, I feel like, uh, We've evolved, you know, in many different ways uh, when it comes to, I think, maybe our intellect, which then doesn't make, it doesn't compute, doesn't make sense. Because if we're, if we're thinking logically about any, any of what's happening, it makes no sense. And I guess maybe I might be answering my own question here because as I'm saying this, I'm thinking of what would Jerry say here and you happen to be here. So it comes back to inside. It always has to come back to inside, but I want to... Just happened to have a copy of my book here. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Shocking. <laughs> there is a, uh, in chapter seven, um, I open up the epigram uh, to chapter seven. Oh, I'll get there. I'll get there. Come on, come. I should have marked this down. There's an epigram that I think comes to me. Because the question that I think you, you're, you're asking is a serious question, which is, if the human condition is such that there is always the other, yeah, there is always the stranger who is a threat, who in its most extreme form needs to be wiped out. If that is part of the human experience, then what are we to do? And I think it, it, it puts us into a place of two choices. Nihilism, just cannot mm-hmm. build a wall around those whom you love, uh, stockpile weapons, and live some zombie dystopia view. And honestly, Mark, I don't want to live my life like that. That is horrible. Or we try. And the, the, the response to trying is, we won't succeed. And so here's some elder wisdom. And this we comes try. from the Talmud. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither are you at liberty to neglect it. Hmm. Rabbi Tarfon. Well. Wow. We try. That, we, I mean, yeah. you have to try. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't recall, Mark. Do you have children? I do. Two and seven. Okay. So they're too young to themselves to have children. As far as I know. <laughs> I, I'm on the back nine of life. I turned 60 in a few weeks. Can I look my descendants in the eye and say... I'm sorry, it was too hard. I didn't try. That feels morally irresponsible. Yeah, I feel that. It is not your duty to finish the work, but neither you at liberty to neglect the work. I keep, I mean, there might be, we'll see, it might be the episode title, but just coming back to those couple words where you you said we try, I mean, I, I couldn't help but think I mean, I know you work with a lot of entrepreneurs and executives and whatnot. And essentially, you know, when you look at business and especially startups and whatnot, uh, the data is there. I mean, the, the, the odds and the, and the statistics are stacked against you to, for, for to succeed. But I think the culture uh, around companies like that that make it, it is exactly what you're saying here. We, they tried, you know, and they kept trying and kept trying. Again, I don't want to be on my deathbed saying it was too hard. Yeah. So I didn't bother. So practically speaking, how do we, because I I do think there's a, and I I put myself in this bucket around really not knowing a lot uh, around my my ancestors. Like I can think, you know, I've I've got a pretty French name and I know where... uh, some of my family has come from 
not even outside of Canada. I mean, I'm assuming with a last name like Champagne, there's got to be some France in there <laughs> in some capacity. But I know it goes you know, in Quebec, for example, in, in Canada, and it doesn't go much further. And I've been, actually, this is a different series, but I've been recording this, this, this original series around demystifying psychedelics. I don't know very much about that world, but there's a lot of talk about it. So I want to have some deeper conversations behind the headlines. And what has been so informative over the last few months of recording this is nothing about the medicines. It's been all of the ancient wisdom and the breaks in wisdom transfer and the systems and all of that exists in a lot of these ancestral tribes that that's where the ma the magic is. And for some reason, uh, I mean, no, there's many reasons, but there, in, it's, at least in North America, there's some huge breaks there Literally. in that wisdom transfer. So where, do you have any advice on how to practically even get started on, on better understanding and, and, and starting to bring in that, that, that knowledge? There's a couple of things um, that come to mind. There's some you know, practical tools and, and what Mark, what you're getting at is, you know, one of the threads of the book reunion is that I go back in time and I look at the question and I end up visiting, uh, the grave of my biological grandmother back in Ireland. But the tactics and the tactics can be fascinating, but the tactics are less important than the attitude. Mm. What do I mean by that? So you said that um, you don't really know, right? It, the, like the, like the, the, the conscious awareness ends in Quebec and it doesn't go further. Yeah. So Which doesn't feel good. Well, I, I'm curious as how, how it, it feels feel good. Yeah. So imagine for a moment that your actual ancestral lineage didn't just sprout in the province of Quebec. Right? Of course. Yeah. Of course, yeah. <laughs> so what was the benefit in your family system of cutting yourself off from that knowledge? Someone or some people said, yeah. we're not going to pass along the stories. Or if we, more likely, we're going to pass along a sanitized version of the story. What I yeah. call the gauzy myth. And usually it involves the resilience of our ancestors. Look at them. So let's use active imagination for a moment. Let's imagine since... Your, your relatives did not spring forth from the earth indigenously to the land known as Quebec, because it wasn't always known as Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Fair. At some point, they were from someplace else. Mm -hmm. Why did they leave? What was their life like? That they would probably cross an ocean probably not under the best of all circumstances, right? Not yeah. in a 747. So why? And yeah. equally important, what did they encounter when they came here? You know, um, James Baldwin, in a brilliant essay called The Price of the Ticket, notes that the price of the ticket to what he describes as whiteness, which you can substitute the language like the price of the ticket to dominance, the price of the ticket to the safety of being part of the dominating class is a movement away from history. Changed names, changed pronunciation, forgotten stories. And the result is we have disconnected ourselves. We who have gone through this have disconnected ourselves, not only from the source of our elder wisdom, but the capacity to feel what somebody else is feeling 
who might be at the gates of our country now. Yeah. But just completely can change your perspective. You mean just like my great-grandparents? That woman on the southern border of the United States is struggling to make a life for her child? Wait, just like my family? Mm -hmm. They have left for political reasons, for economic reasons, for persecution reasons, for systemic yeah. othering reasons. And so once we change this perspective, we can start to see, wait, what, what, what was happening on a systemic basis to say indigenous people in this land, the land we call North America, was not that distant from what happened to our ancestors in another land. Mm -hmm. And if that's the case, Mark, their story becomes our story. Yeah, there's that line, yeah. And then that's where you, that's where you're afforded the pause before you send the post or retweet something or whatever. Or speak from an outraged, it's simple, why don't they just fill in the blank? Yeah. Or worse, they're not human. Yeah. Okay. Because that's where it ends up. Fill in the blank on who they are. Rohingya in Myanmar, Uyghurs in China, Tibetans in China, Japanese in the United States, Koreans in Japan. Because hmm. the, the, the consequence of not being connected, not reuniting with the truth of our own experience, is dehumanization and death. How do you see this? showing up with your clients in their work environment like this because this is very i mean it's all linked of course anything any kind of what i know you you would define and i agree with as radical self inquiry inquiry and then now i mean i think projecting that into your 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 lineage as well has to affect you know, how you show up for your team and, mm -hmm. you know, within a team, what, whatever the circumstances, how do you, how do you bridge the gap there? Well, there's a couple of things to, to be cognizant of, you know, um, there's a pr profound yearning for empathy in our organizations. And too often it's going unmet. And the result is a profound cynicism and skepticism. Now, I'll make a casual link where I, def I defy any organization to create magic in the world when skepticism and demoralization are the predominant emotional experience of employees. Good luck. Yeah. But more importantly, um, every one of this, this is why the subtitle is so important. Every one of our colleagues, every one of us, longs to belong. And there is an enormous possibility implicit in answering that longing to belong, in creating the opportunity for someone to feel seen, heard, appreciated. Sometimes the way that that gets met is by hearing their own story. And sometimes it needs to be met by taking a stand against dehumanization and for the collective species known as human beings. And I want to be very specific about this. The phrase take a stand sounds as if we might be saying, you have to choose which side of a conflict is yeah. right so that you can then join us 
in saying those people are wrong. Mm. This is very much what's happening right now. Right? It's you're either with us or you're against us. Yeah. And that mindset furthers the division. The and, and I don't mean to be Pollyanna about this or soft about this. Of course we would say dehumanization is bad. But really? Are we saying that? When we allow a a beer company to be boycotted because for a 30-second social media commercial, they identify a uh, or, or they name a trans woman as a spokesperson? What the heck? Yeah, what is that? <laughs> That's, we're better than that. We're better than that. We can be braver than that. And to speak up and against the ways in which our fellows, our siblings, are being dehumanized. I have a colleague who will not enter the state of Florida because she can't use the bathroom that's most associated with her identity. Give me a break. Really? This is the world? I'm... I'll be damned if I let that world go without me trying to shake, make a difference. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I get so passionate about this, but well, there's no shortage of examples to. That's right. Prove the prove the point. Unfortunately, I was I wish that wasn't the case, but I, I think and I know I'm personally getting uh, a lot of, as you know, this show is very much like we can talk in theory uh, about really important topics, but it's like, how do we, you know, what are the practices? What are the things we can do? And I feel like we've got uh, a lot of that, you know, just even just starting with from a place of, of not judging, but just going down a, a, a path of curiosity to understand, like to your point, you know, like where, why I love those questions. Why, why did I, why did my ancestors land here in Canada, which of all point, places. Was, it wasn't out of all places, and I mean, we have some history of what then happened when they did land in Canada, uh, which is terrible, of course. But before all of that, you know, it's it's a mystery. And, and I, I think... Well, the, um, did your ancestors land in Quebec? As far as I know. That's all I know. And were they Francophone? Yes. And what was the experience of being Francophone up until the 1970s? You remember the Free Quebecois movement? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's so easy to forget how close it was that there were Francophones who were termed terrorists. Yeah. Why? And that that's interesting because we, I mean, I live in Ontario now, but we, my wife and I, we lived in, in Montreal for five years. And I mean, you can still very much feel the effects of all of that. And it's, 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 it's coming to me now, just in this conversation, it was so easy to, to judge the reactions of, of how, how strong, you know, the, the movement is to maintain the language. And like, there's laws and, and rules that if an outsider kind of looking in would be like, what is that all about? Like you, this makes no sense. Well, and it goes, right? it goes against our, yeah, it, it, right. It, 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 it goes against the American conceit of what a Canadian is, right? A Canadian is easygoing and, you know, yeah. except that there were terrorists. That's what they were called. And what yeah. did they want? They wanted freedom to practice their lives, to live their lives free from violence, free from oppression, free from subjugation. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean just like fill in the blank. Yeah, your story is my story. And Mark, we're talking one generation away from where you are. Mm -hmm. Right? Are your parents still with us? My mother is. Ask her. Yeah. Because yeah, I'm, she, I'm very intrigued. She's old enough to remember when in response, the Anglo fixated and focused laws 
that she was subjected to were changed. You want to wipe out a people? Wipe out their language. It's happening in China and Tibet right now. Tibetan yeah. children go to school. They are not taught Tibet. They are taught Chinese. And within only one or two more generations, the scenification will be complete. This is a policy. Yeah. I'm curious since you've started working on this latest book and since you've gone you know, quite far down on your own research and path and history. How has your, has your journaling practice evolved over the last couple of years? Because I know you, you know, you've, you've been journaling since I believe around 13 years old. So there's a pretty, pretty, pretty consistent practice there. But you know, there's so much going on. There's a, and, and there's a lot more data coming into your mind as well and insight. I'm, I'm curious how a practice, you know, as, as stable as, as your journaling flow, uh, I assume is, how's it, has it evolved at all in any way? Are you find different questions or, you know, what's, what's happening? The, the practice remains the same, which is essentially an exploration of how I'm doing every yeah. day. Right. But the content has been changing. I mean, when I wrote Reboot, my first book, it was from a vantage point of having gone through many of the things that I documented. When I was writing Reunion, I was documenting a process that I was going through simultaneously. Mm. It's a very different vantage point. I mean, there, there are things that are similar between the two books, language, love of poetry, the use of active imagination, for sure. But one of the key differences is that, um, and I even wrote about this in the book, uh, uh, that, that the topic was affecting me, even as I was writing and exploring. And so the result is, and to go back to your journaling question, the result is that the content of what I was going through was forcing me to confront things. So, for example, I had to come into a new relationship. You know, I explore the fact that my father was adopted because I started to empathetically imagine uh, my father passed 30 years ago. Um, so I was never able to ask him questions, uh, at least not in my head ask him questions about what it was like to discover at 21 years old that he had been adopted. And I began to experience my own feelings, including shame, at not acknowledging his birth parents and even not even acknowledging my anger towards his birth parents. How could you give up a child? And realizing that my father, in his journey to becoming his own adult, had positive and negative experiences of that. And to, I found myself stepping into their body. So what would happen in the journaling would be I would be feeling what, say, his biological mother might have been feeling when she gave him up for adoption at 18 months old. What do I know to be true as a parent? That by 18 months, the bonding is pretty set. Yeah. So what was what? that like? Yeah, no kidding. Wow. And she, he had a name, William Michael Heffernan, for 18 months before his new name, Jerome Vito Colonna, took hold. So what was it like to have two names, two identities? There's that subtle, but I guess not subtle perspective shift of going from judgment as a parent yourself, and, and I, I feel this as well, to can you imagine if the roles were reversed, something, something stronger than we can probably even describe had to, had to stimulate that, that, that decision, you know, like there's something there versus just jumping into a judgment. It's, um, wow, it's 
powerful. You know what I, I I'm going to start wrapping up as I want to respect your time, but what I'm I'm I feel so grateful about in this conversation is that most of us know that you know there's typically we can call it capital T childhood trauma things that happen. There's there's this trauma in general that that comes from our our past, but we think of it often in our childhood, mm. and that for for many is is really scary, if not uh, just not approachable in in therapy or whatever. And mm. a lot of times, you know, it, it's just left kind of unexplored. Whereas this approach, I feel feels different. It feels more approachable of. I want to understand, you know, where, what happened? What is, what is the history? You know, it feels like a school project in a way. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. the, 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 the output of it or the benefits have to be almost instantaneous in, in the sense of, because of the perspective adjustment, you know, just by, wow, I didn't, I didn't know that, you know, that makes sense. And, and at least I, I feel will give people the, the invitation to start if you're not, you know, if you haven't gone that down that road and so forth, which would then lead into your own childhood and, and so forth. Yeah. It's, so, uh, so yeah. Uh, let me offer a different word than trauma because what we're talking yes, about, please, because uh, there's, there's a diminishment of what trauma really is when we talk about it without naming it. Let's talk about suffering. Sure. Okay. Because suffering is probably a more appropriate word. And suffering is part of the human condition. Uh, if you recall the four noble truths of Buddhism, the first noble truth is life is filled with suffering. And the second noble truth, in a way, is that which we do to push away suffering increases suffering. Now, this is really important work. Part of what can happen is families do not connect with the suffering of their ancestors because it's too painful. So they don't pass along the stories because it's too painful. Mm -hmm. And what the wisdom teaching tells us is that actually increases suffering. Mine, yours, others. And so the third noble truth, which is the truth of the cessation of suffering, is in effect, we actually have to go to that spot that hurts Again, as Pema says, start with a broken heart. We go to where the broken heart is. And even though the human response is to not go there, one of the, and I can't promise that instantaneous relief will come, but I can tell you that approaching suffering with curiosity can be very powerful. There are Wonderful, wonderful statements of endorsement for a reunion. But one of my favorites comes from a friend, a client named Randy Goodman. Randy is the CEO of Sony Music Nashville, a country label. Mm. And he points out that in his reading of the book, it was, it allows one, to do the exploration and the contextualizing necessary without finger-pointing and shame. And I think that in addition to avoiding the pain of suffering, we want to avoid the feelings that arise that somehow result in guilt and shame. And the truth is, guilt and shame are not in service to reunion. Acknowledgement is in service to reunion. Guilt brings the attention away from the person who is suffering into the person themselves. And, and you know, we're talking about in the context of systemic othering and the longing to belong. But what we're talking about is a movement that is central to interpersonal relationships in adulthood. Hmm. So well said. That's the opportunity that I see. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, I can, I can only speak for myself, but I mean, my, my perspective has already been instantly changed just in some of the questions that you left me to ask, oui. you know, around the why and, and, and how my ancestors were feeling. So that's, you know, that's why I said, I think, you know, it's, it's almost inevitable that some pretty big shifts can happen quite quickly once we start asking the questions and so forth. My last question for you, Jerry, is, you know, soon, I mean, you've, you've felt this obviously with the pre-reads, but the masses uh, are about to hold your book. When someone finishes this, this book, Reunion, how do you want them to feel? Or what do you hope that, that they feel at the end? Hopeful, curious, and willing to start a journey. Hmm. I mean, I, I've said repeatedly to the team around the book, because a book takes a village. Um, what I hope is to spark conversation, not to close the door in conversation. This is far from a definitive, here's what you need to do, as much yeah. as it is, let's start doing that work together. Maybe in doing that work together, we can overcome that which divides us. Maybe. Yeah. But we have to try. We have to try. Babies are dying. I can't, I can't emphasize the importance of this enough. Well, I mean, I'm going to end while my eyes are watering. So thank you for... Thank you for your time, Jerry, and of course, your, your energy towards work and, and story and curiosity and, and everything that you put out into the world to, to, to keep that going and to help people question and, and you know, go to places that don't feel comfortable um, because the ripple effect of of all of this, and you know it, but I mean, I think it's worth to send that back to you every now and then is 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 exponential in in a positive way. So thank you for for what you do every day. and it's um it's a true honor. I feel like I say this is the third time I've said this, but I hope it's uh, I hope it's not the last time. But thank you. Well, count on it not being the last time. And I'll leave you with one thing. Those tears that you're feeling, those, that's gold. That's the tear of the tears of compassion. Okay, we nurture those. That, to me, is how we overcome division. We feel the pain of compassion, so that we could see the human behind the story. Oh, wait, you should have a podcast called that something like that. <laughs> <laughs> well said. 